Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a podcast about making work better. Hello there, this is Bruce Tasley. What a wonderful episode we've got today. If you're starting the new year wondering how to improve your work, then today's episode will give you lots to think about. Rob Briner was not only voted the most influential thinker in human resources in 2016, but he's just been re-voted it in 2018. Now, before we go to the episode, just a couple of things to fill you in on. Firstly, The Joy of Work, my book, is out in just over a week. The joy of works for anyone who wants to make work better. I was chatting to a company the other day and they told me, you might recognise this, they told me that, like a lot of us, they felt their culture was broken. But the way to fix it seemed to be involving putting meetings in people's diaries. And everyone was just too exhausted so that when the meeting requests went in, everyone was moaning about them and weren't buying into the change. If that sounds like your work, then the joy of work's for you. I'm convinced people don't really read books, so it's split into 30 things that you can do, either yourself or in your team or in your company. So just small slices. You can try one or two of them along the way. Included in the book are discussions about the difference between team culture, company culture, and there's a really clear model how to build a buzz culture in your workplace. As you can see, the last eight or so episodes of this podcast cover the police, hospitals, retail stores. So hopefully it's clear that this isn't just for people in offices. So who is it for? It's sort of a troublemaker's manifesto, really. It's, it's for someone who isn't the boss who wants to mix things up. The Joy of Work arms clever people with proof, arms people with evidence. If we wait for bosses to fix things, I think 2019 is going to be as bad as 2018. So let's get in action and solve work now. Now, there's also an audio version available too, so you can get that at Audible. What you won't find in the joy work is long lecturing opinion pieces. The book's based on evidence and fact. Worth flagging, I'm not going to do a podcast on it. So if you are interested in hearing me talk about the book, I went on Emma Gannon's Control-Alt-Delete last week. If you want to listen to that, all the details are in the notes of this podcast. The second housekeeping point is that I'm doing a fair few events to promote the book. If you want to come along to one of the events, uh, go to the website eatsleepworkrepeat.fm forward slash events. A lot of them are free, actually. Others just cover the, the discounted price of the book. So let's go on to today's guest. Rob Briner is a professor of organisational behaviour at London Queen Mary's University. We have a brilliant chat, very much essential listening for anyone interested in the way that companies work. But maybe if you work in HR or you, you're interested in what the HR department actually do. We talk about this thing that Rob is incredibly famous for, uh, evidence-based management. Now, I'd researched it, but he explains it way better than I do. We dive straight in, so don't let the initial discussion um, and the sort of the, the technical-sounding introduction put you off. As Rob explains, evidence-based practice is about trying 
trying things out to improve work and measuring whether they have worked. So it's about getting opinions out of the way and, and looking at actually what's, what's been effective. Before we started, he started talking about my own book and he offered his critique of it. And so I asked him to pause and we, we include that in there as well. We also discussed one of the challenges of workplace psychology, the replication crisis. And that is that a lot of the big research, a lot of the big papers that are published documenting discoveries in workplace psychology can't be reproduced by other researchers. So it's just an interesting phenomenon. Someone will say, here's what's happening at work. Then someone else sets out to to recreate that and to see if they can develop on it and they can't reproduce the original results. So we talk about uh, what that presents as an issue in workplace research. The big thing really we discuss is the idea of employee engagement and employee experience. So these are the sort of the two big buzzwords for anyone interested in changing culture. Is there any evidence for people being more engaged and doing their jobs better? Well, Rob's going to answer that. It sounds heretical to the whole idea of workplace culture. It's worth seeing what Rob believes is the implication for workplace culture. He takes quite an inspiring stand on it. We also talk about the narrative fallacy. The narrative fallacy was a phenomenon coined by Nassim Talib, the rather unpleasant trollish academic and author. He used it referring to our limited ability to look at sequences of facts without weaving an explanation into them. He says, we seek explanations even to the point we will manufacture them. Hmm, I think we're all guilty of a bit of that. Rob ends up giving me his take on work culture and lots and lots more. It's a long one. It's filled with brilliant thinking and ideas. Rob's clearly a genius of modern work, so it was an honour to chat to him. Here's Rob. Right, I'm thrilled you're joining us. And it's uh, firstly, when you read about someone who does your profession, I was I was delighted to see you were awarded Human Resources Thinker of the Year, or the most influential yes, person. Yes. What would you do to earn that accolade? HR Magazine, well, of course, I have to tell you that, you know, being an evidence-based kind of person, or try and be, you know, obviously there's terrible evidence that supports me being the most influential thinker. So I don't <laughs> entirely agree with it, but of course I'm delighted and pleased and proud. So I think really that came about because I've been banging on for some years about evidence-based practice, specifically in HR. Uh, and I think it was more that I had, or I, or the idea, I'd say rather, starting gaining some traction within HR. So I think by influential thinker, it wasn't like, you know, this person's come up with an amazing new idea, or they've done 60 TED Talks, or they've got an amazing book out. It was much more that I'd just been plugging away at the, right. for a long time. And in fact, this year, when I won Most Influential again, they actually said, you know, one of the judges said something like, well, there's nothing wrong with saying the same thing again and again if it's an important message and people haven't quite got it yet, which is certainly how I feel with evidence-based practice. So yeah, I was very pleased, but yeah, yeah. Who knows how it's really awarded. So you've mentioned it there. So let's go straight into like, yeah. this evidence-based... Uh, mm. Is it evidence-based management you talk about? Well, evidence-based practice is the general term, and you can apply it to lots of any kind of practice, from policing to medicine to policy-making to social work to education. So it's a way of thinking about how you conduct your practice. I saw something where you directed people to go to a website, which yeah. was... And what remind us of that website? Yeah, so it's the Centre for Evidence-Based Management, right. and it's www.sebma.org. Find it if you put Centre for Evidence-Based Management. And that basically is trying to, I guess, emulate what's happening in other fields of practice, say from medicine to social work, education, where groups of people said, look, let's try and set up an organisation, an umbrella organisation, that can coordinate particularly learning and training to help practitioners and students learn how to do this better. 
because I was looking at that, and, and in one of the presentations on there, the, um, the person points out one of the pitfalls, uh, which is that quite often, if you go to someone who's entrenched in an opinion yes. and you take evidence to them, weirdly, it can lead to them becoming more entrenched. Yes. I wish there was a political situation that would oh, help yeah, me illustrate this. We could, we could think of something like that. Yeah. I mean, you're right. And this is, this is a problem with doing it. So one of the things we often say in, in other fields, people say, is don't become the evidence police. Uh, you're not using evidence to beat pe other people up because of their opinions. You're actually trying to do something more collective, which is make better and more informed decisions. So people's opinions are fine, but I think the way yeah, it does appear, the way to challenge those opinions is not to throw facts at them. That doesn't actually seem to work, and as you say, it may actually entrench them in that view and opinion. Yeah. Right. So let's go into evidence-based management because almost the very existence of it seems to me like surely all studies yeah. should be evidence-based, right? I mean, like... It, it seems remarkable that yeah. you need to say study needs to be anchored in evidence. Well, you mean practice needs to be anchored in evidence. Right, yes. yes. The practice. Yeah, it is remarkable. and uh, But it's worth bearing in mind that... Give us that distinction. Yeah. So what's the distinction yeah, between sure. study and practice then? So basically, evidence-based practice is not about research. It's not about the evidence itself. It's not about scientific articles. It's not about data. Evidence-based practice is about practice. It's about making decisions, both about problems or opportunities, the organisation may have and also getting evidence about potential solutions to those problems or ways of capitalizing on those opportunities so evidence-based practice is a way of practicing but indeed scientific studies is one of four sources of evidence you would turn to as one source of evidence right someone has studied work and made a conclusion that's good that's going to be one of the things that informs then the practice right Right, so, so all these studies that I've read, they, yes. they still exist. However, yep. when it comes to executing these things in HR in a company, yes, then, then you need to take those things and what are the other three things? Okay, and, and there's a reason for that. So if we, if we start with scientific evidence, it's only one source of evidence. You might have a quite high quality study that shows quite good results. That doesn't mean you can use it in your organisation for all kinds of reasons. You need to know about the context. So uh, as well as scientific evidence, the second area is the practitioner's own expertise and experience. So if you're an experienced and seasoned manager or professional in anything, your experience is also part of that decision-making process. And that's for two reasons. Firstly, you may have extremely high quality, valid and reliable evidence from your experience to bring to bear. That's the first reason. The second reason is you will use your experience whether it's good or bad. So by bringing it to the table and actually discussing it and saying, this is what I think, this is what I believe, this is my experience, you actually evaluate its quality. So clearly in some contexts, professionals' expertise and experience is extremely valid and useful. In other contexts, it's actually quite biasing. Right. So that's the second area. We have scientific evidence, we have practitioner expertise. We also have, in the case of management, organizational data. What's actually going on in the organization, say with employees or sales or whatever other data you might have within the organization. And then the fourth area, is stakeholders, their opinions, their feelings, their views on whatever the problem or opportunity and indeed what the solutions are. So in a sense what it's about doing is bringing together those four areas. Now that's not just the reason for doing that is not to give people lots of extra work. The reason for doing that I guess is really twofold. The first reason is because you have to kind of if you like triangulate a bit. So going back to your point about scientific studies, you might have a brilliant scientific study, huge number of people, participants, organizations, the results are fairly clear. But does it apply to your organization? Maybe not. Maybe your organization is sufficiently different to mean you should not apply that scientific evidence in your organization. 
And it's only by looking at the context will you understand whether or not that piece of evidence is valuable or not. That's the first reason. And the second reason, as I said before, it's about kind of uh, contextualizing, saying, you know, how can we understand these different sources of evidence? We can only really understand them by looking at other sources simultaneously. So I always often use analogy. It might be something like an analogy I would often use. And it's very specific, I guess, well, not just to me, but to the people that like food. If I'm going to a new city, I want to have a good meal. I don't know the city. I don't know the restaurants. How am I going to get good information to help me make that decision? Well, you know, I could just walk out the door and go to the first one. Not very likely. I could, for example, ask the concierge. Maybe more likely. I could, for example, look online at reviews. Even more likely. So that's an example of getting more data, more information. It means I'm more likely to get the outcome I want. And essentially, that's what evidence-based practice is about. It's about making a better informed decision. So these structures, these areas, the steps of doing it have grown in different disciplines just as a way of structuring it, just as a way of helping people think about how to do it. It's a decision aid. Do, does that mean then that, I mean, you hear these titles, I'm not sure, I worked at Google, so I'm not sure, but you hear like Google's got a department of people analytics. Yes. Who knows what goes on yeah, in that exactly. black box, but is that the sort of thing that you would hint towards? Right, that? so people analytics is of course one of those four sources of evidence. So again, nobody knows what's going on in Google, Possibly, can I say this? Even people in Google themselves. Yeah. So it's hard to know, but but generally speaking, uh, people analytics, looking at organisational data around people, is one but only one source of evidence. And it's great if people are doing that, Google, whoever. But it has to be accompanied by looking at those other sources. Right. Yeah. But you don't be too reliant on right one data point. Basically. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Or one data, or, or even one type of data. So for example, you may do some great people analytics that show a particular result. You say, okay, let's go and look at the scientific evidence. You may go, that's odd our results completely contradict 20 years of research in this field. Now, is it because your organisation is just different and it may absolutely be that? Or is it because maybe the way you did that research, you did something wrong or there's some, something weird going on or the way you measured stuff? Or then you go and talk to people and say, we think this is happening, what do you think? And they give you a totally different explanation. So it's like double checking, cross-referencing, triangulating. So just look at one source is always, is always, it's always higher risk than looking across multiple sources. So the one data point that I think a lot of organisations yeah. have got is this, uh, and, and is one of the ones that we hear most often when we, we talk about the workplace, yes. is employee engagement. Right? Yes. Employee engagement. So I guess most companies have got, or a lot of companies now, yes. run one of these employee surveys. They do, yes. An, email, an email lands in people's yeah. inbox. You're asked, you know, I think in my experience, you're asked between 15 and 30 questions, and some correlation is built from them. Mm. Talk me through what your view of employee engagement right. is. Okay, so I think if you look at the history of, and it's important to bear this in mind, so management, HR, many professions are subject to fad and fashion. So a so-called new idea comes along, people jump on it, and it, it's kind of okay. Maybe it's no better than the previous ideas. Maybe it looks more or less the same in the end. And then people are waiting for the next big thing. So go back 15 years, I think engagement was the next big thing. Mm. And now, I mean, pretty sure now it's in decline. And the new thing coming in is, of course, employee experience. Yeah. And it has similar issues and problems as engagement. Go back to your question about engagement. So I think my sense about engagement is, is there's a number of problems. The first thing is it doesn't appear to be anything new. Nothing wrong with it's that. It's job satisfaction, isn't it? I saw you say it's yeah. job satisfaction. Quite. Job satisfaction, job commitment, always, always an amalgamation of different kinds of attitudes 
that have already been measured since the 1950s. So in that sense, there's nothing new, and that's fine, but let's not pretend it's a new thing, that's the first thing. The second thing is- Would you go as far as to say employee experience is the same? Well, employee experience I think is slightly different, and what my understanding of it is people say, oh, it's different from engagement, kind of better, because we're looking at the idea of like touch points between employees and the organization. But essentially, if you look at it, what people tell me employee experience actually means is how we need to think about how employees experience their work because that affects how they're motivated, how they feel and how they behave. To which an obvious response is, well, that's what we've always thought about. Why is this different? So it's this sense of, is it different? So I think for anybody in any profession, when you're presented with this new idea, you have to ask, is it new? Because that's the first thing you need to sort of get out. And it could be, and it could be marvellous and new and different, etc. It could be new and terrible. But the sense is which old things are being repackaged and sold as new. So employee experience, I think, has some similar problems, some different problems to engagement. Right. So I think the, the, the second major problem with engagement, though, I think, is it kind of overclaiming. So people will make huge claims about the impact, say, of engaged employees on performance, on productivity, on profit, and other sorts of things. Again, if you look at the best available scientific evidence, yeah, maybe there's a bit going on, but it's no great shakes. And it is similarly with job satisfaction performance, is that a major determinant of performance? I would say it plays some role, but it's not the biggest thing. Let me put it another way. If you were concerned about improving performance for some reason, then you would not start with job satisfaction or engagement as a way of doing that. You wouldn't get much bang for your buck. Right, okay. It's, I guess this is where your evidence thing comes in, right? Because most of us would say that first-hand experience, which is one of your four things, yes. by the way, so it's not, Absolutely. we shouldn't completely discount exactly. it. Exactly, it's expertise, it's yeah. your experience. So yeah. one, of our, one of our data points says that, you know, when a team is motivated, happy, right. f like forward-looking, yes. they seem to do a better they job. They do, indeed, I agree with you. But the question is, what are you actually seeing? That's the question, right. what are you observing? So there's a couple of things. The first thing is what you might be observing is job satisfaction or engagement as an output of performance. In other words, if, you, if people reflect on when they felt they were performing really well or a team was performing well, people reflect on that, then the question is, is, was that feeling satisfied, feeling engaged? Was that an outcome of high performance or was it a cause? So it's totally plausible that actually when you start to right. perform well, you feel more satisfied, you feel close to your colleagues, you feel more engaged, you feel more committed to the organisation. But is that because you're performing better or was it those feelings and emotions that drove the performance? That, that's the first thing. And the second thing is even where you do see these links, again, what kind of performance are you seeing? So in the case of job satisfaction, people argue what you're seeing is someone who feels a bit happier. And actually what that means is they may be more flexible. If I say, can you help me out with something, please? Uh, and you're more satisfied, you're possibly more likely to help me. Does that mean you're doing your job better? Different question. So what we might be observing is cooperative behaviours, other sorts of things, not necessarily task performance. So clearly, I completely agree from our experience, if people seem happier and jollier, it seems to go along with performance. The third thing is, you can also imagine lots of situations where feeling happier is actually detrimental to performance. Go on. Right. If you are uh, an accountant, if you're doing work that requires huge concentration, if you're doing work that requires incredible levels of critical thinking, being in a particularly good mood is not actually helpful for those cognitive tasks. It actually gets in the way. So to do those kinds of tasks, your emotion needs to be a bit flatter, certainly not happy, maybe even slightly anxious or slightly negative. 
put it another way, sometimes being, being anxious, being scared, being sad can be good for some kinds of tasks. So I think the link between... I've only ever seen negotiation yeah. as one of the ones that was helpful for Yeah, that. negotiation, I think, is, is one of those, but I think there's lots and lots of tasks. An right. example might be, you know, this, this, this would be relevant to anybody who's listening to this who remembers or has kids who are going through uh, exams and revision. If you're in an extremely good mood, the birds are singing, the sky is blue, the garden outside the park, your mates beckon, it's and you feel great about life. It's really hard to sit down and revise for an exam. Yes, but like being in a state of negative effect, being in a sort of an anxious state can but be equally it as can debilitating. If if it can be, but maybe I think that's an example where you might need mild anxiety to get you sitting at that desk and going through your books. Right. So all I'm saying is there's a sort of matching effect between, so, so in general, feeling good is not generally good for performance. Feeling bad is not generally bad. It depends on what kind of... Right. And if a case of negotiation, it may also be crucial that it's the process or patterns of emotion within a task that are most important okay so you're not the grinch so you're not against the idea i'm not against <laughs> no, i have some sympathy for the grinch but i'm not the grinch no. right okay so you're not the grinch in the sense that you're saying that i've got no interest in people being happy and and, no. and motivated at work I just want to see the evidence for yes, it. Yes, and, and, and I do have an interest in people being happy and motivated at work, but I think we have to make a clear, absolutely clear distinction in the case of, say, happiness. Are we interested in people's happiness because we think it links to performance, or are we interested in people's happiness because we think it's the right thing to do? And I get very, very concerned with business cases for things like diversity, inclusion, satisfaction, mental health. I don't want to see the business case because I think that is morally bankrupt. Right, I think so we you, should be just doing them full uh, stop. If you think as an organisation or senior management team or group of employees, you think we should create work that makes people feel happy, more satisfied, fulfilled, that's your task. And you can also work on performance and they actually may be in conflict, but don't do it because you think it will lead to performance. So I think that's, that's a really dangerous route to go down because a sort of related example is diversity and inclusion. Supposing you do all this diversity and inclusion stuff and it turns out, you know, there's lots of evidence from some scientific studies and there's evidence from organisational data that says, you know what, we've created these more diverse teams and actually it doesn't enhance performance. Are you going to just stop that? Are you going to start treating people unfairly because it doesn't make a difference? No, I, you might do that, but that's why the business case is problematic. No, so, so absolutely, I think... But isn't it just a bit like you're sort of making the economic case for recycling? Yeah. It's a bit like, you know... If, if there's something, you know, like back to, did you ever see the decision architecture with towels, the Robert Cialdini and, and like they, they went into hotels and they, oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it was sort of behavioral yes. science. And they said to people, you know, if you recycle your yeah. towel, we'll give a donation and recycling went up. And so, you know, it, it's directionally what we want to do yes. already, but it's providing that's right. but affirmation a, for it. There is, and that's right, but there's a danger in doing it if, that, if that's the argument you make for doing it, not only because it may turn out there isn't really a link, but also because I think it makes people uh, not reflect on and move away from the moral imperatives for doing it. Right. So if a business leader says, yeah, I'm doing this, not because I care, because it's good for the bottom line, well, hold on, what are you actually saying? But Rob, you're, you're a business lecturer you know that you know there's no shortage of business leaders mm. around the world who will say you know the reason why we are structured in this way right. is that we have a fiduciary responsibility yeah. to our board and if we don't do this we're in breach of mm. the the terms of how we're members of the board and so so 
just trying to do base something on morals often sort of yeah. runs aground, doesn't it? It can. It depends what you think, what the board members like, or what the board members are to do, and if you think all kind of big organisations, board and capitalists, are fundamentally evil. Uh, or where do you think? I agree with you, but I don't think it's as straightforward as you're saying. Okay. That there are people, you know, activist investors. Yeah. If, if you can, exactly. If yeah. you can back up your principles yeah. with a bit of evidence, I, I do think there's a case for it. I think if you can, it depends. Okay, I'll give you more a more extreme example that right. may convince you a little more. If you think of something that's a moral, any kind of moral good, uh, whether it's well-being at work or whatever else it is, I would say. Yes, you can bring in, and if not only is this a good thing to do, but it has these positive side effects for something else, great. But I would say in terms of focus and for organisations and for the ethics of organisations, I think it's more important to focus primarily on what do we want this workplace to be like for people and their psychological well-being and their fulfilment and happiness and other kinds of things because i think the danger is in adding throwing in this other stuff so it's partly because it's a distraction uh, and partly because it just may not be true it may, it may not make any difference at all to the bottom line and, and i think that begs the question of yeah, do, we, do we want to carry on doing that or not so i think it's i think it's yeah i take your point i see your challenge uh, but I do think there are boards, as you say, with people on them who may be interested in that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, what you might say is that conducting ethical business long term is good business. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, like, for, from my point of view, I think doubling down and having evidence for mm. as well as a moral reason to do something feels like, like yeah. a good idea. I, I guess also, then you need, if you're going to do that, then you need to be clear about, suppose it turns out, it appears that it actually isn't beneficial. And we're still sticking to it. Yeah. So, in a, in a, yeah. What, what are you going to do then? Uh, yeah. If there is, and indeed, what are you going to do if, in fact, it's slightly detrimental? So, in the case of diversity, for example, and having diverse teams, the evidence is, is kind of mixed on the effects of having diversity in teams on different kinds of performance, but uh, some studies kind of suggest that maybe it's quite good for organisational or for team performance. Some studies suggest it's sort of actually detrimental. Some studies don't show much difference. So if you have that diversity is detrimental, is part of your reason for doing diversity, well, we're going to stop doing it because it seems to be detrimental for team performance. And that could be a decision you make, but maybe it's about having clarity on that. Uh, rather than say, I'm going to get evidence to justify this good thing, you know, I would say we'll do the good thing anyway. And great, if it has these other effects, marvellous. But that shouldn't be the basis on which you're yeah. doing it. Yeah, that's it. Cause there was a Harvard study that I saw that was like, the one thing that that diversity can be responsible for is creating sort of almost a disharmony. It, it can make mm. teams a little less comfortable mm. to be in. Yeah. You know, like it's, it, it's by the very nature, it's very comfortable to be around people who are yeah. Ho yeah. homogenous with us. Exactly. And, and so if you're yeah. optimising for team happiness, yes. then op then you, you've got a choice there, haven't you? Mm. What, what do you yeah. optimise for, happiness or diversity? That's right. And I think there are trades, particularly around well-being and performance, although this is something I, I think certainly some academics, some practitioners, some consultants, some HR people, managers like to say it's a, it's a kind of double whammy, happier people, better performance. Other people say, so actually, there is a kind of trade-off there. You know, what, what do you want? Do you want? If you want better performance, you can be really horrible and you'll get it. I mean, it may not be sustainable and you may lose people, but does it matter if you've got a cheap labour market? Maybe not. So it depends what you're trying to actually actually do. Indeed, I think there may be trade-offs there. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting conundrum for me. I, I really loved, I chatted to Zainab Tan, who I don't know mm. if you know her work. She's, uh, she's, she's done this good job strategy. Working, she's like a... Um, a business operations person mm. really but she looked at supermarkets and she looked at a series of 
there was a Spanish one, but a series of US supermarkets. And she found that in the long term, companies that treated their employees better had much lower turnover and they had much higher customer satisfaction. But then you see that, and, and, and so consequently, by her sort of extensive evidence, um, those organizations were more profitable. But then you look at organizations like Sport Direct and right. these sort of zero hours organizations, yeah. and they clearly seem to have a different model, which is highly they do. profitable. Absolutely, exactly, they do. And also depends, you know, how important, so it depends how important you think job satisfaction, sorry, customer satisfaction is to organizational performance. I mean, again, it it's very contextual. So my understanding of the customer satisfaction literature is in some contexts, yeah, it plays quite an important role in business sustainability and profitability and you know, turnover and so on. In other contexts, it's not the most important sort of metric to look at. Right. So obviously, the reverse, the, well, the converse is you don't want to make customers really unhappy, but focusing on that as an outcome. So indeed, it, treating people well may lead to high customer satisfaction. Does that in turn lead to other results for the business. And that's where kind of the gap is. So again, all these things are kind of, imp there's implicit, uh, I guess, causal chain between treat your employee well, they have these feelings, that affects their behavior, this affects customers and clients, then this has, yeah, and of course those chains are, pr are probably there. I'll tell you what then, so uh, it feels a little bit like, you know, um, the, the sort of the reliance on evidence, mm. it feels a bit computer says no. In the sense that, you know, like all these hypotheses that people right. might okay. posit how to make work better. Okay. And then, you know, so it's like if we do this and then right. the evidence-based people say, yeah, computer says no. No, and computer doesn't say no. Okay. Computer says it depends. Okay. So, and that's, that's, I'm really glad you asked that because this allows me to, to make this point. The right answer to most questions is it depends. Right. That's true uh, in life as well as. Absolutely it is. And so, and what. I think our job is, is to ask what it depends on. So I, I'm very wary, as everybody should be, as general prescriptions, do this and it's good, do that and it's bad. It's like, it depends. So what does it depend on? Right. And indeed, what evidence-based, because evidence-based practice is about making more informed decisions, thinking through those contingencies is, is part of the process. So it's not about not doing things, it's about doing things within the context and the, the range of evidence and information you've got. So you abs it is about practice, it's not about not doing things, but, it, it, but that sense of what the things depend on is, is, is a key part of doing it. Most organisations though, say if people work in organisations, mm. I mean like, you know, even I guess British companies up to sort of a couple of hundred people, are you going to get enough evidence back quickly enough? Is the feedback loop going to be good enough yeah. to be meaningful? Yeah, I think, I think I, that's a brilliant question. So I think, I think it's always about using the best available evidence you can get in that context. Right. So for me going out for dinner in this city I've never been to before, I'm sitting in my hotel room, I'm searching online, it's six o'clock, I want to have dinner at say eight, it's now seven o'clock, I'm still searching, oh, I can't get good evidence. At some point I just have to make a decision. So you're right, in, in that context I probably won't find ideal information unless I spent weeks and didn't eat anything and then I would and then it'd be too late and whatever, whatever. So I think it's a question of cutting your cloth accordingly. So absolutely, so if you, in a small organisation you don't have to have a ton of perfect data, it's about making better decisions. So the argument would be from an evidence-based practice perspective is, is more, better quality data is more likely to help you make a better decision and get the outcome you want. So it's not about perfection, 
It's not about saying, you know, we actually know this is the case, we know this isn't the case, it's all about probabilities. So even in a small organization with not many resources, again, we would still argue it's better to go through that process and look at those data, think about it, than not doing that. Right, so it's like steering your way to six out of 10, right? Like, we're working on the basis that, you know, by the law of average, the restaurant you choose is gonna be a five. Right. And so using the evidence you've got, not desperately seeking a 10, Exactly. Because the chance that you find, but using the evidence you've yeah. got, and so like any intervention you make in a workplace, Absolutely. base it on those four things to steer uh, you to absolutely. six. And the reason for doing that, I mean, the other thing about evidence-based practice is about the conscientious, explicit and judicious use of evidence. And the idea is not just about making a decision, one-off decisions, it's about learning about the context you're in. So it's about learning about the organisation, it's learning about the data you've got, it's learning about the scientific evidence, stakeholder evidence, your experience that apply to the problems you've got. So if you repeatedly do this for sort of big decisions you have, the idea is it also helps you as a practitioner kind of learn. So similarly, the next time I'm in the next time in the city looking, you know, Googling stuff, looking for restaurant reviews, I'll probably get better at doing that. I'll get faster. I'll learn from my mistakes, I'll learn from the process of going through that and I'll get better at doing it. So th- I think the other thing to bear in mind about doing this is say it's not a one-off, it's about developing the skills and capability and capacity to sort of do evidence-based practice. And you can only really do that, like most things, by actually doing it. Because I guess the thing that people who run these pulse surveys mm. or employee engagement surveys might say is what we're trying to do is gather evidence. Yeah, sure. We're trying to gather firsthand, you know, we ran this wellness thing, are people feeling better? We ran this, we changed this policy, Mm. are people feeling better? Is is it just that there's no evidence for employee engagement or those interventions are non-specific? Yeah, so if you take employee engagement, there is evidence, uh, but the evidence is it doesn't have a particularly large effect. Uh, And there is, and in terms of evidence that you can intervene to increase engagement, there just isn't much evidence at all, good or bad doesn't mean you can't it means we don't really know uh it's plausible absolutely but a more fundamental question before we get onto wellness programs and engagement and again this is where evidence-based practice i think makes a big difference is you have to start with saying what is the problem or what is the opportunity so for example when i'm talking to engagement people i quite often say you know what is the specific problem or issue or opportunity you think might be kind of resolved or fixed by measuring engagement and typically there isn't one there right. is no specific problem or issue. We just think we should measure it and try and increase right. it. Right, because so it's about what, start. You always have to start with a problem or, or, or clear opportunity. Yeah, and that's, we're very used to thinking about solution. We, is that better? Than right. That? Well, I don't know if it's better. What's the problem? Because there was a thing in one of the articles that was posted on that website where a um, a woman said that her boss had said we want to create a a program for high achievers. Right. And the evidence-based person said, I think it was Jeffrey Pfeffer said, uh, okay, can I, can I ask why? Mm. And, you know, there's no, you know, is there any evidence that high achievers are leaving the organisation? Yeah, or exactly. is there yeah, any yeah. evidence that they're less engaged than they used to be? Yes. And she said, you don't understand. We want to create a programme for high achievers. Yeah. And that seemed to be like evidence-based practice in... in 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 action yes absolutely and and so i think practitioners in many fields including management and hr are are rewarded for activity uh they're not necessarily rewarded for doing what works that's a whole different ball game even as rewarded for tackling important organizational problems it's more like just do stuff and let's see your stuff and roll things out and make things happen and 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 often that's say what 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 people you know get rewarded for and i think with evidence-based practice you you don't you know you don't think about solutions 
first you think about problems. Got it. So again, we hear a lot of uh, practitioners in different fields say, well, does this work? Is, that, is this thing better than that thing? And I say, for what? <laughs> it depends. That question. It depends. Is it a good idea to use psychometric testing? For what? Compared to what? You know, it's not. It's a non-question. Right. Unless there's, there's, there's a kind of issue there. Got it. So it's a bit like those people who turn up somewhere with a hundred-day plan, and you right. go, "How can you build a plan until you've seen the terrain?" Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and it is. And I think this is. It's this concept called solutioneering that you define a problem. Or, or you, you sort of try and understand the problem by the absence of a solution you've actually already want to implement and thought right. about. So the problem is we don't have a uh, managed talent, talent development program. The problem is we don't have whatever it is, training program. That's not a problem. Yeah. That's an activity. That's not a problem or potential solution. The question is what's the problem and is that the most likely, the, mo the most cost-effective approach to dealing with that? And, and I think we all of us, it's very hard to stick with analyzing and understanding and diagnosing problems it's hard going back to your question about mood and affect i think people love solving problems because it's fun because they feel collective they can do stuff there's not too many arguments we can all feel like we're making progress and throw ideas around it's marvelous sitting down thinking what what the hell is going on here what is the actual issue is is it feels slow it requires a lot of you know sort of critical thinking it, it, you have to really get into the the stuff it's not very pleasant for most people it's not fun it's sort of tough it's hard work and that's why i think people often slip from from doing that a little bit straight into sort of finding a solution it's very kind of not to say not just for managed i think in lots of walks of life we like to come with solutions to right i'll oh, stop thinking about the problem let's just do something right okay you know? it's interesting because even like as you were saying that I started to think, oh, is you know, is there a set of, is there a toolbox of mm. solutions that people, but you know, that's exactly it. I'm yeah. immediately reaching for, Absolutely. is there a list of solutions? Yeah, yeah, and toolbox is one of the, or, or people talk about tools, they say, oh, it's just a tool, and you go, well, what do you mean, A, what does that mean, it's just a tool? And, and the question is, what's this a tool for? Yeah. You know, the classic hammer nail kind of, kind of what's this? yes, it's a tool, but is it, useful for this particular issue or problem who knows i mean what is it what is the issue or problem again my experience anecdotally my professional experience typically is that yeah if i talk to sort of I know, managers hr managers that, that i say they are very uh they're, they're really good at doing stuff they're yeah. really good at making things happen if you say what what's this for yeah there's not such a clear yeah, kind of answer sometimes. You're obviously like, they love you in HR, don't they? If they're giving you this influential thing. Well, but some might, yeah, <laughs> some. Isn't one of the problems in HR that it's like this really low status, low power part of an organisation? Yeah. You know, it's like, it seems like, you know, like, if you regarded it as internal design to mm. some extent, sort of like a mm. production process, in no other, you know, like we, we treat it as like a low priority yeah. thing, don't we? We treat it like... It's, it's not treated, certainly in the hierarchy of an organisation, mm. like it's the secret source of how yeah. to make a, a company succeed. Yeah, and I think, I think there's all kinds of historical reasons for that, and I think, I think it's, it's obviously wrong in a way. I think one is that obviously it evolved as an administrative function, yeah. uh, doing sort of completely transactional sort of stuff, payroll, hiring, all that kind of stuff, which can feel a bit, well, it's just sort of stuff you do. But on the other hand, it, it also does stuff which is much more strategic and linked to the goals of the organisation, which, which is, is, is a different kind of activity. And indeed, some people think you should split the HR function 
So those really transactional administrative things, incredibly important, and obviously payroll is really important, uh, but that's actually such a different activity, it shouldn't even be in the same department, yeah. the, the, the sort of difference. That's where you get OD and those other kind of disciplines that kind of more... Because I was reading one of the things you shared mm. or one, uh, on that website, and it was, um, it was about the evidence-based of changing the induction process of organisations. Yeah. And really fantastic evidence based on, we changed the induction process in this, but, but because those two disciplines are often together, the induction process for a lot of people, because it's run by HR, is often this series of rules. Yeah. It's, it's like it's like that post that you have at the swimming yeah. baths. It's mm. sort of like, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this. And because HR runs that. And it strikes me that if it was based on evidence-based, you wouldn't bring people into a company in the way that we do. Yeah. So, so like yeah. The, the merging of those functions seems to be... Yeah, I, th I, th I think that's right. And, and the other thing I think that's happened historically is that uh, HR, because it has had, I think unfairly, to some extent, a kind of inferiority complex. Uh, I think what happened in the sort of 70s, 80s, 90s, there was a kind of seat at the table argument. HR needs a seat at the table. Right. We need a seat at the table. And in the end, I think that is a completely unconvincing thing for any profession to do, to just say, we, we should have a seat at the table, because why? Why should you? So I think one of the reasons HR has more recently adopted evidence-based practice is because it, it, it's tried other stuff to become more influential. And in the end, I think, I think, I hope, any professional practice, whether it's you know, finance or whether it's the states, whatever it is, the way it becomes influential is by actually tackling real organisational issues and problems, uh, trying to use evidence to do that, trying to find effective solutions, showing where it works, putting your hands up when it doesn't and saying, I'm going to try something else. I think because HR has been quite concerned to protect its reputation, it hasn't done putting that hand up stuff right. and saying, Actually, you know what? This didn't work. We made a mistake. We're going to try something different for these reasons. This is why we're doing it. But I think it's just entering that kind of phase now. At least some HR practitioners are, and some organisations are saying, "Yeah, we're going to be open about this. This is the best way, not only to help HR as a profession, but actually to help the organisation." Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Let's continue that discussion that we started with. So, you mm. know, I was telling you about, um, we were talking about workplace culture, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Which is obviously quite a nebulous thing and probably sort of... Certainly is. It's yeah. probably, you know, when it comes to evidence-based. Yeah. And I was, I was briefly telling you beforehand that, you know, I'd written this thing, which was like 30 ways to change workplace culture. Mm. And they're quite... Ex- they're quite sort of tactical, actually. Like, mm. they're, they're, you know, do this, introduce this, change this. Um, and you said, oh, that doesn't sound like culture. So, so mm. go on, critique what I've done wrong. or, or get, No, no, I don't, I don't think it's wrong. I think, I think it, nothing wrong with it at all. But, again, it depends what you mean by culture. So a classic definition is something like culture is the feel of the place. It's intangible stuff. It's the way we do things around here. And it's often used as a kind of all-purpose, if only we could get the culture right or there's mm. something wrong with the culture. And then you dig into that, it, it all starts to get very circular. Because yeah. culture is the way we do things around here. It's, are you saying we should change the way we do things? Okay, fine. Well, why don't we just change the way we do things right here? Why l- lump this amorphous, weird, vague cult- concept of culture on top of it? So I think it's this thing, get the culture right. Again, it's all kind of circular, tautological stuff. So the idea that it's about things like values, a sense of the way we do things around here, it's, it's this hard to pin down thing. And the idea you can manage culture, if you kind of define it in that classical way, is quite questionable because mm. it's, it's quite hard to do that. And even if you do want to change in that way, you know, you're talking sort of 10 years or something, maybe even longer, mm. quite radical shifts. And the other question is, why would you want to? Uh, why is that going to help? It'll f- why is it going to help anything? And I think what you were describing is actually more tangible, specific ways of saying, let's change the way we organise ourselves or design our work or structure, I know, a meeting or, or, or design tasks so that it's more maybe effective and it's more rewarding for people and people can maybe communicate a little easier. And you can call that culture, but I'm saying that's not what... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic. And maybe some people do mean culture. Yeah, no, the interesting thing for me, because back to like what you said there, like cultures, the way things are around here, mm. I, I think you would struggle to say that with any sense of evidence mm. that people are our most important asset and then permit weekend emailing. You know, right, yeah, yeah. P- permit a boss to, because once you recognise that people being switched on and connected to their devices all the time is, is causing sort of record levels of burnout, yes. th- and you recognise that you know people, so consequently, if you stand up and you say value, people are our most important asset, yeah. which is probably in every organisation's set of values, I think. Yeah. Um, once you permit weekend emailing, right. you're you're permitting something that's in opposition to that. So for me, like. The, the challenge with culture, I think, is quite often, it is this nebulous thing where people say, yeah, my old company had a better culture than here. And you ask them to pinpoint why, and they can't pinpoint yeah, why. Yeah. And so for me, it's, a, it's like dissecting it down to what's your attitude to people working late? Mm. What's your attitude to, you know, weekend emails? What's your attitude to... Um, the volume of meetings people are expected yeah, to have. Yeah, absolutely. And then the question, the question. Yes, you're right. I think I think there's a lot in that. And I think the question is then, if you see these, let's call it norms, norms of behaviour. It's fine to email on weekends. It's fine to email at night. Then the, the, the question is, how do you actually sort of change that? Yeah. And how do people, even if you set up norms or try and change the norms, people obviously subvert it. They just work at, all weekend and just don't send the emails. Yeah. Or whatever you know. Or they work very late. In itself, I'm not late. against that though. Okay. 
in in the sense that you know, like the autonomy to just clear your inbox but yeah. not pollute someone else's. Right. So you know, like sometimes we've just got we're just in the zone. We want to get yeah, something yeah. done. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So maybe occasionally it's fine. But uh, in, in the case of sort of sort of saying that we, we don't want people to overwork, whatever that means, in in this workplace, and we're trying to set up norms for that. It's pretty tough to do because then you have to change all kinds of things about promotions, mm. rewards, mm. the way you recruited people. And as soon as, say, somebody observes someone else getting rewarded because, okay, they didn't work weekends, they didn't work e evenings at work, but you knew that they actually did go home every night and work till right, midnight. Right. And they were extra hard, so they got what's seen as a higher performer. And you're thinking, well, hold on. They're just working all night. I can't yeah, yeah, work all yeah. night because I've got kids or I don't want to or whatever. So as soon as you violate that, then suddenly it, that, that sets up a kind of contradiction for people and they just don't buy it anymore. Right. So, that, so I think the, the issue about manipulating culture or trying to do it is I think if you, if, if you get it wrong in that sense, then you've blown it. So I think it's quite hard to sort of yeah, shift yeah, in that yeah, sense. Yeah. It's really easy to sort of set these standards, but then people, oh, right, this is the standard, and then they're monitoring it. Yeah. So, you, so, in other words, I think in general, my sense, it's, it's like the olden days, maybe people still do, when people put these are our values on the wall. You know? What did that achieve? Uh, in the end, I think people looked at that and probably thought it was probably not every organization, but many, in the end, it's kind of BS. Like, what's that for? Why, yeah. why am I in the coffee room? They're telling me what the values, what does that mean? Why are they telling me? And I know they're not the values because. I can see what's going on here. So why are they telling me these values? So I think these kind of interventions, you have to be really careful. It can be so counterproductive. I yeah. Think. I chatted to someone who said, long term, the only business culture that sustains is mastered irony. Basically, yeah. people sort of, whether to a knowing group of like-minded people yeah. or, or to um, or to what or just to themselves they mm. sort of they perform a silent eye roll mm. and then and then conform which is I guess why I've I'm very focused on team dynamic rather yeah. than you know like that a company is just a series of teams yes. rather than this notion that you're going to have this big monoculture yeah. that is going to be truthfully pursued yeah and i think yes and I, I i think there's again i think there's probably something in that that you could say in some units some units of, of operations some units of are actually easier to sort of shape uh manage from a better word uh to affect to design than actually others and i think probably something like a team is a level of analysis or, or unit where it's probably it's, yeah i think it is easy and trying to change a whole organization and and also together and in fact the team is so it can be counter-cultural and actually go against prevailing stuff as well but again it depends what the organization more broadly or the senior management think about what this culture thing is whether they're serious about it or not whether they approve of this maverick team doing its own thing and what signals does that send then to the rest of the organization who are trying to follow this culture yeah. and this maverick team is sort of doing really it's mad well. the idea of maverick though isn't it because yeah like normally yeah. when takeovers go wrong right and yeah. like half of all well takeovers just go wrong don't they and and normally it's because you're trying to force what was clearly attractive enough to buy yeah into a different organization's culture and structure mm. and presumably that must play a part in some of that value being destroyed yeah i, th I think it probably does I, and and more broad i think if you want to i, I think how about it I think, uh, for what you've said, I think this is what you said. I think if you focus on things like task design and job design, I think these other things follow. 
So rather than saying, oh, let's make people feel they really belong and they're valued and then let's see if they perform well. Well, why not just give them a job that's interesting, design reasonably well, give them the resources they need, the skills and support they need. You know what? That probably will make them feel valued. Start with the job. Right, okay. Start with the task. Start with yeah, those okay. things. Rather than these other airy-fairy things that, that are probably the outcomes of that other stuff in any case, not the cause of it. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, so. it is. So, so it, it sort of goes full circle to uh, talking about employee experience. Yeah. Because if you're focused on elements that are sort of extrinsic, outside, outside the job, benefits and, and mm. workplace environment, and exploit employee experience, all the things under that, you're missing the substance of what will yeah. actually shape employee yes, experience. Yes, absolutely. And, and one of the things, again, that, that people talk about with the employee experience is, is just kind of, I know, the sort of frustrations people have about trying to get the job done. Uh, you know, I'm trying to do a task. I've got to fill in this form. It's not even available online. The, you know, whatever it is, I've got to go through this process. What you want me to do twice? You want me to? Do, why is this relevant? So those kind of rules and regulations that kind of don't make sense to people make people is that an employee experience? Well, that would be defined as a kind of employee experience. Uh, that, that's their con that's the contact an employee has with the organisation. Okay, to do a task. so that is captured. E Kind of, yeah. You could, and you could say, well, hold on. And, and it was a bit like a customer experience. It's like a customer. So, so there's a very close parallel, I think, between customer. Uh, think about customers. Think about employees. In that, we've had customer satisfaction, a customer engagement, and now I've got customer experience. This, I think, this is paralleled exactly when thinking about uh, employees. Now, treating employees like customers, I think, is a metaphor that works up to a point, but only up to a point. But I think the idea of thinking about where do people have contact with the organisation when they just go nuts with trying to do something, they think they understand what their job is, but the organisation helping them do it, that creates cynicism. And they could say, oh, we need a cultural change around that. No, why not just think about the way you're designing tasks and processes? And it's a bit boring, but in the end, I think that, that okay. stuff is quite important. And my, again, this is completely anecdotal and only based on my evidence of my experience. But my sense, if you talk to people about what drives them nuts about their job, why they want to quit, what makes them want to stay, it's because they either feel they can, they understand what they're required to do, they've got the resources to do it, and they can kind of get on with it and feel they're learning and they're making a contribution, or the other extreme, perhaps, they feel they can't do that and things right. are getting in the way. So it really, it's sort of, in a way, it's simple stuff, but in a way, it, it, I don't think it, I think it's quite hard to it do. It feels to me like the microeconomics of work in the sense that, you know, like you fix work, that, that's, but you fix work by solving all the little bits yeah. rather than, you know, the employee engagement thing yeah. is like macroeconomics yeah. of work. It's like, how can we fix this company yeah. rather than looking, right, okay, the computer system this guy's working doesn't work. Yeah. So his day is yes. filled with exactly. yeah. like massive yeah. frustration. You fix that, he'll love his job again because he, everyone wants to yeah. do a good job. Yeah, it's, yeah, I think they do. And, I think, and, it is that, and it is that stuff that, I say it's quite mundane in a way, but so fundamental and so important. And, right. it, and, it's, and it comes back to obviously quite old ideas, nothing wrong with old ideas around things like job design. How do you design jobs and tasks and roles and indeed teams in ways that allow people to, to get on with their work, to do it well, okay. to flourish, all those kinds of things. And that's probably not much to do with all that high-level stuff in, from culture and engagement and experience. It's always about saying, what is work actually yeah, like yeah, for people? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. No, because that's my take. But like I was talking to you before, mm. but my take is you actually make someone's job better by you know reducing the amount of interruptions. You, you take them yeah. away from a you know constancy of pings and interruptions mm. that that are damaging their concentration. They're really micro. They're really they're job designy a bit. Uh, yeah. They're just trying to allow people to succeed in it, and and they're often too boring to even yeah. relate. Yeah, and also, and also, I think take, so. Again, this is anecdotal; it's not based on any great evidence, but also take people away from things that are actually unnecessary. Yeah, uh, and again, people usually because they've been in a job for a while are pretty good at picking up which bits of my job are really adding value. Uh, and sometimes they may not know, and but that's again a problem with organisational design that no one's telling them, no one's showing them. But but people pick up, you know, what's really adding value, what's actually making a difference, and what is actually really. A waste of my time. Meetings, my right. little. Well, for example, it can be meetings. So one of my metrics is often saying is often thinking about if if you take a hundred percent of your job and everything you're doing it doing in that job, what percentage of that job do you actually think is valuable right. to the organisation? Okay. You know? uh, and which and how much do you think is just like going through stuff, wherever meetings you feel are pointless, where decisions aren't really made and someone else has already made them and it's all kind of superficial, it's not really achieving anything. Um, yeah, what percentage, that, and at what point do different people feel therefore a job is, is worthwhile or maybe not so worthwhile? Yeah, you know? it's interesting because that would by almost, by, by giving complete autonomy, by mm. sort of allowing people to be self-determining, it's almost like that results-only work environment. Did you ever see that yeah. system? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was... Was it? It's a bit like when my college mates used to tell me about pure anarchy. Yeah. And, you know, it's a beautiful system when someone describes it to you over a glass of wine. But of course, you know, it collapses because yeah. of failings. And the row system results only in work environment. I think Best Buy ditched it and, and yeah. Gap ditched it. Yeah. Because it just didn't quite seem to add up to more of the sum of the. Exactly, and I think those kind of systems, and and I think other systems, kind of make sense. But again, I think to make it, to make these things where it actually requires quite a lot of effort. Yeah. So I think you can, but, and then the question is, is the effort that goes into making it worth worth it? Right. As opposed to the original system or some other system. So yeah, I think they can they can be effective, but but again, it, it, it requires work to do it. Yeah. And more generally, I think, and going back to HR and management too. There's a view that historically HR and management in general has kind of got away from that nitty gritty of what are jobs and tasks like. Right. And they've gone to higher and higher, more kind of abstract levels about how you manage people. And actually forgetting it's obviously those micro tasks and behaviours that collectively add up to what makes an organisation successful. Right. So if things are not going well on these micro levels, how do you expect things to be yeah, okay yeah, yeah. up here? So it's like, it's like, I think the idea of refocusing on, on the kind of the craft of work, what people are actually doing, their frustrations, what helps, and those kind of issues are is is something you could argue we need to kind of return right. to. And maybe that's why employee experience is sort of hitting a nerve with people because that's what it's talking about. Is it? Okay. So it's a bit, a bit like those McDonald's days, the sort of back to the floor where, you know, yeah. everyone who works in retail does a day in yes. December where they're, yeah, in, yeah. they're on the yeah. floor in retail. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, re- reminding yeah. them what, first-hand experiences yeah and that's the front line that's actually where this is how we're generating value with these customers in this context with this product or service that's where it's happening i think what interests me and and i don't know much about it it is is broadly i think the idea of fad and fashion in management and other fields it is is a very important barrier to evidence-based practice because it 
it appears to me that in, in, in many fields and people who work in a particular field for 20, 30 years can usually attest to this, that they are encouraged to, to adopt some new idea that's supposed to be revolutionary, different, that's going to make everything great. So it's presented as this kind of panacea. They go along with it. And then, of course, usually, not always, it's kind of dropped within two or three yeah. years. And then that, now here's a new idea. And after a while, people get tired of it. As I say, they get kind of cynical. So I don't... I, sort of don't understand it very well at all, but I'm really fascinated in why we all tend to kind of go with sort of new, exciting ideas without thinking about it. I mean, part of the reason is this idea of solutioneering, because it mm. means we don't have to think about the problem. We've already got a solution we can grab. Uh, but I think the other thing that fascinates me is I think they are incredibly damaging to organisations mm. and possibly indeed to whole economies because different business organizations pick them up, adopt them, run with them, whether it's lean manufacturing or total quality or excellence, more historical one. People pick up these ideas, they really try and implement them and they do change the way to some extent organizations function. But in the end, is it, is it, actually, is it actually helping or is it detrimental? Is it, is it sapping of energy and, and resources? The only justification I've heard people make for adopting fashion fashions is that it energizes people but isn't it isn't it a product as well that you know business uh, business schools teach case yeah. studies where you know there was an answer there was an answer and and you know like they go through cases yeah and you know so you get spat out of that process thinking right there was an answer and normally yes. and normally the case studies are stories of transformational failure right yes one or the other and so consequently it it invites you to have this almost narcissistic take that there's a correct answer a, and we and we need to do it. Thing out there, and yeah. the truth is, your counter proposal, it depends, yeah. is far less alluring. We 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 find ourselves drawn towards certainty, yeah. don't we? Yes, we do. And I, th and I think you're right about the case method. And indeed, it's come under, under a lot of criticism within uh, business school educators. And in fact, that, that's one of these why it's sort of the, it's really been changed. So there isn't a right answer. There isn't a magic. Right formula to try and present a bit more of the complexity you might actually really experience in organizations so yeah i think that's part of it. i think the allure of, of having 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 an answer and i think i think part of it as well again depending on which field you work in uh, and i'm not particularly having a go all consultancies but certainly for some consultancies and consultants their business model depends almost entirely on generating new ideas hmm. uh, as it does in the whatever literally the fashion industry or new things or apparently new things so the business model is we need to create a new thing so right now mindfulness is very sort of popular so if we ran a consultancy we think oh we need a new it's not so new now but we think oh we need a new thing let's do mindfulness but well, what will we do we'd probably develop a training program we'd probably develop online surveys we'd probably have an app we probably do have a manager training course, and we develop this stuff, we flog it to everybody we knew, all our clients, their clients, other people, and in the end we go, right, let's sell more mindfulness, and you'd say, you know what, Rob? Everyone who, who wants it's got it. Right, we need something else, what is it? I know, how about employee experience? Great, here's an app, here's a survey, here's... So in a sense, I think it's part of the marketplace bore ideas uh, for products and services that sort of propels this as well. And, and part of my, uh, I guess, part of my personal mission around fads is, is to try and develop tools to help consumers become kind of slightly more savvy consumers. So not quite, quite the witch report for management practices, but something where mm. that tries to say, look, this is around, this is being sold. What's the evidence for it? Should you buy it? 
will it be effective is it better than anything else so people get a sense when this new stuff comes along they can actually go somewhere and think about is this actually yeah. useful or not because there's nowhere at the moment yeah that because that's one of the challenges of modern work there's like you know evidence never presents itself unless yeah. you go looking for it sure. yeah, evidence yeah. never presents itself yeah. and unfortunately normally the people who bring evidence are you know people more likely to read Richard Branson or Alan Sugar's book yes. god forbid and and try and learn lessons of business yeah. rather than trying to get any evidence or or anything that's sort of structured based on yeah yeah so and i think i think there is a sort of i know romance or romance excitement of adventure of kind of yeah new stuff and i think maybe that goes along with it i think there's lots of success stories about individuals success stories about companies success stories about new exciting fads and fashions that are very exciting and alluring and i think sometimes they're, they're probably more appealing than doing the sort of boring yeah. but difficult but important stuff of saying what's the evidence what's the problem what's the most likely solution let me ask you this question as a practitioner in would you call it a, f a field of psychology it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it is yeah, really yeah, yeah. isn't it yeah. isn't, isn't the issue it, as a practitioner in psychology, who's someone who's based on evidence, the fact that there's a replication crisis yeah, yeah, that yeah. runs through the whole of psychology. Yes, completely. So, so, so replication yeah. crisis is where yes. these big papers, someone goes to replicate the mm. methodology and gets different results. Yeah. So, that, so interesting. That's, a, that's really interesting you asked me that because uh, when I first got interested in evidence-based practice in things like psychology and work psychology, organizational psychology, HR, management, about 20 years ago, at first I was very much coming from an academic scientist perspective, just saying, you know, you, you managers, you've got it wrong. Here's a great meta-analysis. Here's a great study. Why are you doing this stuff? It's useless. Just use the evidence. And after a while, I kind of thought, hold on, what if we turn that evidence-based practice lens to what we are doing as scientists and researchers? And if you do, we don't look too great. So it's partly things like the replication crisis, indeed, that, it, that it's hard to repeat studies that other people have done. But it's things like p-hacking, if you've come across that. No, it's p-hacking. So p-hacking, so, so well, A, there's a real, so statistical significance, certainly in, in many social sciences and other disciplines. So getting statistical significance is seen as a very important thing. And if you get a statistical significance at a particular level, then your result is seen as important and valid and publishable. If you get a statistical level that's below that, then it's, you can't publish it, or it's harder to publish it, it's seen as not so valuable. But in a way, statistical significance is completely arbitrary. It's a completely arbitrary dividing line. So an effect that's, you know, at one point move it, you know, millimetre to the left, it's not significant anymore. So it's a very arbitrary division. So what that means is people, p-hacking is hacking and manipulating your results and your data to sh push it into oh, get out. Uh, right. statistical significance so it's easier to publish it. Uh, and this is, I think, from... The Would that include dropping data, data yeah, points? dropping data points, dropping wow. participants, only using part of the data. Wow. And this, is, this is a common, certainly in the fields, it's a common right. practice. It's a common practice. So if you say, we are scientists, what, what a good evidence-based practice is in science, they are not p-hacking, they're not, not doing enough replication. So the replication is really, issue is also really interesting. If you, as a researcher, certainly MyFood, want to do a completely straightforward replication of a study that maybe you did, I'm, I'm going to replicate your study, I couldn't get it published because the journals would say, oh, no, no, it's not novel. Where's the contribution? Oh, right, Where's okay. the thing? So it doesn't even invite replication. No. So it's a really strange, it's just really strange and quite, I think, quite a corrupt 
view of or corrupted over time view of what science is so so yes absolutely so i certainly don't sort of sit here stand here saying scientific evidence is wonderful it's trustworthy it's great and so scientists know all this stuff and they are absolutely evidence-based own practices they're not they're just not and i think it's quite in a way it's depressing but in a way it's heartening because i think it underlies the issues of what happens when people who are you know are kind of smart or kind of want to be ethical when they get into organizational contexts where there's academia or a job or a big organization sometimes that sort of smartness and some of those ethics sort of a, a bit you know dissipated a bit by the demands of that organization and how they're expected to behave yeah. so yeah indeed I, I, I and again as i always say to people you cannot automatically trust scientific evidence whoever's done it wherever it's published, whatever the status, whichever university they're in, you should treat scientific evidence in just the same way as any other evidence, say, what's this claim? What is it telling me? How trustworthy is it? Big challenge, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's one of the hard things because we, you know, to, to the point previously, you know, we find it depends far less appealing yes, yeah, than yeah, certainty. Yeah. Yeah. So you read a paper and sometimes you read papers actually and you think that feels very convenient. Yes. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the sort of, it yes. feels very convenient that it's directionally going in that direction. Yes, I think, and the result of that convenient stuff and the, the other, yeah, I mean, there's lots of sort of these bad practices. Another one is called a uh, harking. Right. Harking, H-A-R-K-I-N-G, stands for hypothesizing after the results are known. Right. And this, again, is a really common practice. So you do a study, you get some results, you may have started off with some hypotheses, they're not supported by your data. So you say, okay, what, what have we got in the data? What seems to be going on? I know, maybe this hypothesis, maybe we can change what our original idea was and, and make up hypotheses so we now know what the results are so they fit with the data we've right. got. And harking, again, is, is commonplace. Having said all that, as you mentioned, the replication crisis, th there are steps now being taken by in some scientific communities to try and actually rectify some of these problems. So a great way of getting around the harking problem is you have what's called a registered report or two-stage submission system such that you, you do a study, you submit it to a journal for being reviewed, but you don't include the results. So it means the person, the referees, the peer reviewers looking at it are not judging your paper on its results. They're saying, is this a good review? Are these hypotheses reasonable in principle? Uh, does it kind of make sense? Uh, is a method appropriate? And if all that's okay, it'll be accepted or rejected on that basis, irrespective of your results. It's interesting because when you look at it, for me, it feels like it's governed by that human desire, the, the narrative fallacy, yes. that, you know, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. that we want. Uh, you, as you're it talking is. there, it brings to mind Amy Edmondson's work that she was talking about psychological safety. And mm. she looked at the amount of errors being made in certain hospitals. Yeah. And because it was so counter to what she'd hoped, that she then created this narrative, which mm. has become like, you know, a, a global hit. Yeah. Uh, that actually good teams admit to more mistakes yes. because it, f yeah, and, yeah. and and the the thing that strikes me working in a tech firm is that a machine learning doesn't have this yeah. narrative fallacy that you know what mm. where a narrative fallacy humans love stories, and so machine learning doesn't love stories yeah, it yeah. just loves likelihoods percentages Patterns. and and so yeah. it it builds in towards something yeah. which has got. Uh, sort of vagueness and it, you yes. know, it, it just sits as a likelihood which is less appealing it as humans appealing, yeah. as humans we want something that's definitely or almost certainly or you know definitely not or almost certainly not and machine learning just often goes yeah it's yeah it's, 
a 17%. It is, and, that, and that's the whole story and narrative. I mean, you see, obviously, uh, scientists and researchers use it when they're writing a paper and want to tell a nice story. Uh, here's my hypothesis, here's my method, this is what I found. Wow, there you go. Uh, rather than here's my, here's my method, here's my results, oh, I didn't find anything. Oh, that's not a very good story. But actually, scientifically, that's equally important. Yeah. But it's not a very nice story. I didn't get any significant results. And I think you also get this in things. And you're not going to get citations on no, that, are you? No. So the whole currency of yeah, yeah, yeah. academic yeah. discussion. And that's also, of course, a problem with things like TED Talks, because TED Talks tend to want to tell a really nice, and they're entertaining, uh, perhaps edutainment or something like that, called an education entertainment. But, you know, I think in, in telling the nice stories, what are you actually losing? And you might be actually losing a lot of evidence, mm. being very selective. Because, yeah. again, I, th I think, you know, evidence and looking at that so it doesn't always tell a very compelling or interesting story but it's very important yeah i've loved that discussion thank you yeah, very much me too thank, thank you. you loved that all the previous episodes are on the website eat sleep work repeat.fm this episode's running for the next few months so look out for them and as ever I welcome people linking into me or connecting with me on twitter see you next time 